These lectures are based on the scripture series, The Bible and the Church Fathers, prepared by the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. For more information on the St. Paul Center, you can go to their website at www.salvationhistory.com. I dedicate this series to Deacon Vince Trainer, who passed suddenly last December. Vince was a regular participant in these scripture studies and often told me this one on the Church Fathers is the one he was particularly looking forward to attending. I like to think of Vince as now getting to know the Church Fathers firsthand in heaven. And now, the Bible and the Church Fathers. We will finish Lesson 2 from last week, Scripture, Tradition, and the Fathers, and continue with Lesson 3, Fathers of the New Covenant. Okay. Should we begin? Begin with the Holy Spirit prayer. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and you shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, by the light of the Holy Spirit, we shock the hearts of the faithful. Grant that by the same Holy Spirit, we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're going to finish Lesson 2, we didn't quite get to the end last week, on Scripture, Tradition, and the Fathers, and then we'll begin Lesson 3, Fathers of the New Testament. If you have your workbooks, we're around page 21. I'm going to just kind of briefly recap a little bit about where the canon of Scripture came from, how they got developed. And the canon of Scripture is the term we use to describe the books that belong in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament, we call it canon of Scripture. That's how we use it today. At the time, at the early church, there were a lot of books contending to be in the canon, and the church had to make a decision which ones should be there. And they eventually defined the official canon, which we have today. The Mauritorian Fragment, which is a Latin copy of a Greek document that dated from the 200s, is the earliest documentation that we have that lists most of the New Testament books. So it's, it's a document that just lists the books. And in 367, St. Athanasius gave us the full list of the 27 books. So now we have somebody listing the 27 books that we recognize today in the New Testament. 393, the church centered at Hippo, so now you're getting a little more official, in North Africa, they recognized the 46 books of the Old Testament that we have today and the 27 books of the New Testament. They, they recognized them as official canon. And in 397, the Synod of Carthage confirmed this canon from Hippo. And 405, Pope Innocent I confirmed the list. And that was the list for like the next 1,000 years until that was challenged by Martin Luther, which was the beginning of Protestantism. So in response to Luther's challenge to the canon, at the Council of Trent in 1546, they reaffirmed the list that was in existence for a thousand years plus with a formal doctrinal decree. So now it's doctrine. One of the founding principles of Protestantism is this sola scriptura, which holds that scripture alone is sufficient for knowing the fullness of truth about Christ and salvation, which was really a rejection of tradition and kind of a rejection of the church's authority as far as interpretation. All you need is scripture. St. Augustine pointed out, I would not believe the gospel had not the authority of the Catholic Church led me to do so. And today, Pope Benedict XVI reminds us 
that the word is not an independent reality floating above the church, but rather something the Lord passed on to the church. St. Augustine is very clear as to what to do when you are in doubt over interpreting a passage of scripture. He says, consult the rule of faith which comes from the clearest passages of the same scripture and from the authority of the church. And now we're going to have a reading from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Know this first of all, that there is no prophecy of scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation. For no prophecy ever came through human will, but rather human beings moved by the Holy Spirit spoke under the influence of God. Personal interpretation can work, but ultimately it's the church's authority to interpret scripture for us, especially if there's doubt. We need the interpretation of the church. St. Vincent of Lorraine addressed this in the 5th century when he said, someone will probably ask, since the canon of scripture is complete, at this point the canon was defined, what need is there to join with it the authority of the church's interpretation? For this reason, because owing to the depth of holy scripture, all do not accept it in one and the same sense, but one understands its words in one way, another in another. Therefore, it is necessary on account of so great intricacies of such various error that the rule for the right understanding of the prophets, referring to the Old Testament, and the apostles, referring to the New Testament, should be framed in accordance with the standard ecclesial and Catholic interpretation, ecclesial meaning church. And the interpretation of scripture for us takes place most naturally in the liturgy where God continues to speak to us today. So scripture was in fact made for liturgy. Pope Benedict tells us, Word and Eucharist are so deeply bound together that we cannot understand one without the other. The word of God sacramentally takes flesh in the event of the Eucharist. The Eucharist opens us to an understanding of scripture just as scripture for its part explains the mystery of the Eucharist. The early church understands that the word of God was not passed down to them only in the written text of Scripture, but also through the tradition of the Church, especially in her liturgy, where we celebrate the sacraments. The sacraments are mysteries of the Church. Uh, in the early writings of the Church, we'll use the term mysteries, referring to sacraments. The sacraments or mysteries of the Church are also part of the divine revelation given to the apostles by Christ. St. Basil writes, of the beliefs and practices, whether generally accepted or publicly enjoined, which are preserved in the church, some we possess derived from written teaching, others we receive delivered to us in a mystery, and again kind of referring to the sacraments, by the tradition of the apostles, and both of these in relation to true religion have the same force. So the fathers understood that divine revelation consisted of scripture and tradition. Neither can stand alone. So if an interpretation of scripture violates tradition, the tradition passed down from the apostles, it is a clear indication that the interpretation is an error. And the church fathers are invaluable guides to interpreting scripture. They are a strong defense against all who would twist its meaning and misinterpret its message. In fact, St. Peter, very early on, warned against such people. And we'll have a second reading from 2 Peter, this time chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, 
as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, also wrote to you, speaking of these things as he does in all his letters. In them there are some things hard to understand that the ignorant and unstable distort to their own destruction, just as they do the other scriptures. So even then, Peter's recognizing that some, especially Paul, is maybe difficult, and we do need a guide to understand what is being said, and that guide is the church. So the early church has to fight numerous heretical groups, twisting scripture, and one of the most famous defenders of orthodox interpretation is St. Irenaeus, or orthodox is correct beliefs. Irenaeus was an early church father living from around 125 to 202. After ordination, he was sent to Gaul, which is modern-day France, where he eventually became a bishop of Lyon in Gaul. In Irenaeus' writings, he doesn't just defend the faith, but begins to go deeper in understanding the doctrines of the church, and because of this, many scholars consider him the father of theology. St. Irenaeus was particularly relentless in his struggle against the Gnostic heresy. According to Justin Mortar, another early church father, Gnosticism was founded by Simon Magus, the magician who shows up in Acts 8, wanting to buy the power to confer the Holy Spirit on people. And he is condemned by St. Peter at the time. Our Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means wisdom or knowledge. The Gnostics claim to have special knowledge possessed by only a few elect, and they select passages out of scripture to support their ideas. And this really is a pattern with a lot of heresies. Heresies generally have a kernel of truth, but they kind of get part of it right and part of it wrong. So in order to avoid falling into heresy, Irenaeus stressed the importance of reading all scripture in light of the overall story, which we call the story of salvation history. Irenaeus and other church fathers also understood that sacred scripture contained more, more than just one level of meaning. First, there is the literal sense or the meaning that the author intended to convey when he wrote. So, for example, when the Bible talks about the Jerusalem temple, it's talking about the real building where sacrifice and worship were offered to God. The literal sense can often point to something deeper, which we call the spiritual sense. And we use the term typology. A lot of things in the Old Testament are a type of something new, pointing to a deeper spiritual sense of some of the stories in the Old Testament. Many of the fathers divided the spiritual sense into different categories. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church calls them allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The allegorical sense asks the question, of how the events and people point to Christ and the Paschal Mystery. And the Paschal Mystery is the mystery of how Jesus redeemed us through his passion, death, and resurrection. So the allegorical sense recognizes that while the Jerusalem temple was a real historical place, it was also foreshadowing Christ. So when Jesus says in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, He's referring to his own body. So the Jerusalem temple pointed to Christ, the true temple. The moral sense asks how the events of scripture help me and how I should act. So St. Paul reminds us that we are joined to Christ, the true temple, through baptism. So our bodies are also temples of the Holy Spirit. So we are to live morally. We are to glorify God in our bodies. And finally, there's the anagogical sense. It asks how 
The events, peoples, and places of Scripture point to the last things. So the earthly temple of Jerusalem points toward our eternal home and heavenly sanctuary. But, while exploring these different senses of Scripture is good, there's always a danger if anything is taken to an extreme. So, in the ancient city of Alexandria, Egypt, the allegorical reading of Scripture flourished. This allows scholars to show the mysteries of Christ hidden in the Old Testament and uncover God's plan, his salvation history from creation onward. But taken to an extreme, this Alexandrian school approach could spin out of control, becoming fanciful and complex, even slipping into Gnosticism. Conversely, Antioch was the home of a school of biblical study that emphasized a literal sense of scripture. This meant that scholars could teach scripture stories vividly and transport their listeners right into the, into the biblical event. On the extreme, however, this could slip into a fundamentalistic misreading of scripture. Heretic Arius, who taught that Jesus was a creature, was the most notorious and misled alumni of this Antiochian school. So what comes to light when studying the fathers is that they read the scriptures, prayed the scriptures, and immersed themselves in the scriptures until they were, you might say, living the scriptures. And it was through this intimacy with the word that they were able to interpret the scriptures properly by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are called to the same intimacy with the word of God. As Catholics, we are blessed to hear the word every Sunday, in fact, every day. And even though the liturgy is a privileged place for the Word of God, we should make personal reading of Scripture part of our daily lives. After all, they were written for us. They have been described as God's love letters to us. St. Augustine likened reading of Scripture to reading letters from the other world. They're letters from our Father and from our Fatherland. If we don't read those letters, if we don't read Scripture, we can't know God for who He truly is. Perhaps St. Jerome expressed the idea most concisely when he wrote, to be ignorant of Scripture is to be ignorant of Christ. And that brings us to the end of Lesson 2. In Lesson 3, the Fathers of the New Testament will look at the Father's understanding of what we call today the New Testament. So we associate the term the New Testament with the written text of the Bible. But there's no evidence that anyone in the first century ever used the words New Testament to describe written text about Jesus and his apostles. And the same is true for most of the second century. We don't see the term used in this way to refer to written text until Tertullian does it sometime around the end of the second century. He uses it while defending the doctrine of the Trinity. There, Tertullian references the Gospel of John in a few epistles, telling his opponent, if he can't convince him with quotes from the Old Testament, he will use the New Testament to confirm the Church's teaching. But again, it wasn't used this way till the end of the second century. The term New Testament was used earlier, but in a different meaning than we use it today. For example, St. Irenaeus of Leon, writing in the mid to late 2nd century, uses the phrase when writing against the heretic Marcion. Marcion rejected the Jewish scriptures, asserting the God of the Jewish scriptures was nothing more than a cruel tyrant. In addition to his rejection of the Old Testament, Marcion only accepted parts of the Gospel of Luke and ten of Paul's letters. So when St. Irenaeus spoke of the New Testament to refute Marcion, he doesn't use the term to refer to the set of 27 books as we know today, because they, those set hadn't been defined yet. Irenaeus uses the term to refer to a new order that was brought about by Christ's coming. He uses New Testament to describe the change in the state of things 
that was prophesied by the prophets and fulfilled by Christ. Irenaeus connects that new order to what Christ gave us at the Last Supper. He says, Christ took that created thing, bread, gave thanks, and said, This is my body. And the cup likewise, which is part of that creation to which we belong, he confessed to be his blood, and taught the new oblation of the new covenant. Uh, oblation is a word to refer to an offering to God. A new oblation of the new covenant, which the church received from the apostles, offers to God throughout the world. To him who gives us, as a means of substance, the first fruits of his own gifts in the New Testament. In other words, for Aeneas, the New Testament isn't a book, it's a source of nourishment, the Eucharist, intimately connected with the Last Supper. Following Irenaeus, St. Clement of Alexandria declares that the New Testament is the reason God became man, and this New Testament was given at the Last Supper. For this, again quoting Irenaeus, for this he came down, and for this he clothed himself in humanity. And just before he poured out his offering, when he gave himself up for ransom, he left for us a New Testament. I give you my love. In another place, Clement compares the believer to an athlete, saying, But let him go and put himself under the word as his trainer, and Christ as a referee of the contest. And for his prescribed food and drink, let him have the New Testament of the Lord. So like Irenaeus, for Clement, the New Testament is the sacrament of the Eucharist. But where do Clement and Irenaeus get this usage for the term New Testament? And why is it said in the context of and dependent on the ritual worship that Jesus established at the Last Supper, where he was celebrating the Passover feast. Irenaeus had said, our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. To get the answers, we have to go to the original languages. The Old Testament, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, with a couple exceptions, and the New Testament was composed in Greek. The word we translate as testament in Hebrew is berith, and in Greek is didatheke. However, both berith and didatheke are more accurately translated as covenant. What we call testaments, the ancient Israelites would call covenants. For the Jews, this word did not refer to a book, but rather to a profound kind of bond, a family bond. We talked about covenants, creating family bonds. We saw in our first session, covenants were the way through which God created and extended his family, creating a covenant bond with humanity. The ultimate, and the ultimate goal of these Old Testament covenants was to bring the whole world into the new covenant, into God's family. So what we see in these Old Testament covenants is that they often include a ritual oath. They also usually include a blood sacrifice and a shared meal. We see this, for example, in Exodus 24, when God makes a covenant with Moses and the Hebrew people at Mount Sinai. And we're going to read that. Uh, Exodus 24, verses 4 to 7. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearance. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So you have all the elements here. Moses performed the sacrifice, the people swore an oath, and then they ate and drank in the presence of God. We also want to point out that for the ancients, the term berith referred to the covenant, but it also referred to the ritual oath which the parties used to enter into the covenant or to renew the covenant. It also refers to the new order or the new state of things the covenant had brought about. That is the laws, regulations, and institutions that had resulted from the covenant, as well as the specific elements of the covenant. The Law of Moses, for example, included specific prescription described in the Book of the Covenant, Exodus 24-7. With that background, let's return to our term, the New Testament, and how it was originally used. The Church Fathers are not the first ones to use the phrase. Long before Irenaeus and Clement, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, spoke of a didatheke or a new covenant, Kine is new, Kine, and we're going to hear what the prophet Jeremiah has to say. That's, uh, we're going to read from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will bring the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers the day I took them by the hand to lead them forth from the land. For they broke my covenant, and I had to show myself their master, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will place my law within them and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the Greek word Nike that Jeremiah used here indicates newness, a new covenant, indicates a newness in time, but also there would be something new in the sense of something different than anything had come before it. It is the same word the Apostle John uses to describe the new heavens and the new earth that will come at the end of time in the book of Revelation. The phrase Nike to the Theke shows up six times in the second part of the Bible, the New Testament. A similar phrase to the Theke Neah shows up once in Hebrews 12:24. So this New Testament or New Covenant shows up seven times in the books we now call the New Testament. And each time the phrase shows up, it refers to the New Covenant Jesus made as the perfect mediator between God and man. I will make a New Covenant. Like we hear that at every Mass, this is the blood of the New Covenant. The only time we see Jesus using the phrase himself is at the Last Supper account in Luke 22. And he does so in the middle of the ritual covenant meal. He does so in the midst of the Last Supper, which was the Passover. And we're going to read Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. Then he took the bread, set the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, 
This is my body, which will be given for you. Do this in memory of me. And likewise, the cup that we have that evening, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, which we shed for you. So in addition to Luke, the institution of the new covenant is also found in Matthew and Mark, and also in the writings of St. Paul in his, in his letter to the Corinthians. And we're going to have a reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 27. For I have received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. So this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's another another significant word. The word remembrance also has liturgical connections and implications for the Jews. This word remembrance was a u- word used to describe the specific temple sacrifice for Passover, and Jesus was celebrating a Passover meal. What that tells us, what that tells us, is that Jesus is not simply sharing a parting meal with his apostles at the Last Supper. He is inaugurating a new covenant. So if what Jesus if what Jesus really established was a new covenant that fulfilled the old covenant, why do we call the Bible the Old and the New Testaments? Well, there's an old saying, an old Italian saying, that every translator is a traitor. In other words, the fullness of a meaning often gets lost when we translate words into other languages. So when translating the scriptures into Latin, it was difficult to fully capture just what that word covenant meant to the Jews and the early Christians. Because there's no exact equivalent for the Latin Hebrew word erif or the Greek word didatheke. The two words, the two Latin words that came closest is the word testamentum, which means will, and foetus, which means treaty. And over time, the word testamentum became more and more the word of choice to describe the new covenant of Christ. And when the Bible was translated now from Latin into English, the word covenant was chosen instead of testament. That's why we read the word covenant when we read the scriptures. But we still maintain the custom of calling the list of the 27 books the New Testament. So despite a translation that couldn't fully convey its real Jewish or Christian meaning, we know that the early church, the early Christians, understood that this testamentum was the Eucharist, the New Covenant Oath. For instance, as early as year 111, a pagan governor, Pliny the Younger, wrote to Emperor Trajan and reported that Christian worship included eating food and swearing a sacramentum, an oath. And this oath was understood to be a covenant oath. So in conclusion, contrary to popular use today, for the early Christian church, the New Testament wasn't actually seen as a book. Long before the New Testament became a document, it was a sacrament instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church. 
The night before he died, Jesus didn't say, read this testament, but do this in memory of me. It was an action, something to do. The Mass is a meal and a sacrifice that renews the New Testament, our New Covenant with Christ. And Christ isn't the only one using the term New Testament or New Covenant. We already saw that St. Paul was very careful to use the same covenant language as Christ quoting when he quoted our Lord's words at the Last Supper in his letter to 1 Corinthians, which we just read. And then Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul speaks of the ministers of a new covenant. And this is important because in the original, ministers literally, literally means deacons, which is a liturgical office. The book of Hebrews uses the term in the same way. There the term, shows up in the discussion of the priesthood of Christ. Contrast in the new covenant of Christ with the covenant and sacrifices of the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews says the following. And we have a reading from Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 15. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come to be, passing through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hand, that is, not belonging to this creation, he entered once and for all into the sanctuary, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a heifer's ashes to sanctify those who are defiled, so that their flesh is cleansed, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to worship the living God? For this reason, he is mediator of a new covenant, since his death has taken place for deliverance from transgressions under the first covenant. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The point is that whenever the phrase new covenant shows up in the books we call the New Testament, it is in the middle of discussions about the priesthood, sacrifice, and liturgy. Even so, if Christ is intending to inaugurate a new covenant at the Last Supper, something is missing. As we said, covenants aren't just marked by an oath and a meal, but also by a sacrifice. If Christ is the priest, as the book of Hebrews claims he is, he needs something to sacrifice. Just as in the old covenants, he needs blood to shed, and of course, blood was shed. The key to the new testament, the new covenant, is the cross. Paul describes the sacrifice of Christ in 1 Corinthians 5-7, when he writes, Christ, our paschal lamb, has been sacrificed. Later in Ephesians, he describes how the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So more than just a collection of books, the New Testament, or the New Covenant, is an oath, a meal, and a sacrifice. The Mass is not simply a meal, nor simply a sacrifice. It is the offering of Christ, the death of Christ, and his victory over death and the resurrection which we celebrate in Mass. That's how the fathers understood the, the term New Testament. Paul reminds us of the special, special nature of the Eucharistic sacrifice and meal in his letter to the Corinthians, and we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because the local bread is one, we, though many, are one body, but we all partake of the one way. So, as we've said earlier, covenant sacrifices were meant to make us into a family to bring about communion. 
and intimate sharing, kind of a becoming of one. And the sacrifice of the new covenant actually brings about communion with the body and blood of Christ, full communion with God. The problem with the covenants of the Old Testament is that they were unable to bring about full communion. But in the fullness of time, Christ came as the perfect mediator and as a sinless priest, he was able to make a new and perfect and everlasting covenant on our behalf. So now we share in this communion every time we go to Mass and participate in the New Covenant, the New Testament, the Eucharist. Because of this, the New Covenant is vital to our lives as Christians, and the Apostles knew that. Way back in the Acts of the Apostles, we hear that the New Covenant worship is the centerpiece of Christian life. Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the Apostles and to the communal life and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And ever since day one of the church, these four elements, the teachings of the apostles, communal life, breaking bread, and the prayers have been part of the celebration of the Eucharist, our new covenant, and the testament in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us? St. Clement of Alexandria says, and just before he poured out his offering, when he gave himself up for a ransom, he left for us a new testament. I give you my love. What is that love, and how great is it? For each of us he gave his life, the life which is worth the whole universe, and he requires us to do the same for each other. The New Testament, the New Covenant, calls us to give our lives for Christ and for each other. The Eucharist calls us to unite our sacrifices with Christ's sacrifice, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, as Paul says in Romans 12.1. We are sent out, as we hear at Mass, to go forth, the Mass is ended. That's the command of the New Covenant. Go and be Eucharist to the world. We call the 27 books of the New Testament the New Covenant. We call it that because that's what they are. It's a whole new way of life. And that's a pattern we even see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel received the Book of the Covenant from Moses after the covenant treaty ceremony of sacrifice, ritual, and oath at Mount Sinai that we read at the beginning of this class. The Book of the Covenant was meant to help the Israelites live holy lives. And Christ gives us the new covenant, the Eucharist, so that we can become a holy people. Christianity is a religion of the Word, Christ, who became one of us so as to give himself to us. The Fathers had been celebrating the mysteries of the New Testament and the liturgy of the Mass for centuries before it became a formal canon of Scripture. The New Testament took on written form only after and in conjunction with the Eucharist. The Fathers understood that the New Testament was first and foremost Christ ritually celebrated in the sacrament. St. Clement of Alexandria says, Christ made a new covenant with us. For what belonged to the Greeks and the Jews is old, but we who worship him in a new way, in the third form, are Christians. For clearly, I think, he showed that the one and only God was known by the Greeks in a Gentile way known by the Jews Judaically and in a new and spiritual way by us. That's the third way he's referring to. So the fathers, the early church fathers, stand as a clear witness as to the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. This is critical for us, especially as Catholics, this idea of the real presence. So while this word, and the word we use to describe this is transubstantiation, so while this word, which is the word transubstantiation, which is the belief that the bread and wine are truly transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ at the words of consecration at Mass, 
had not had been formally defined until the Council of Trent, which was in the 16th century, the Church has always believed that from the very beginning. And it wasn't formally defined until then, in the 16th century, because that's when it was challenged. And that's typically when the Church defines doctrine is when it's being challenged. It hadn't been challenged for 1,600 years. So for the Fathers, there wasn't any need to formally define it in the early Church because the Fathers understood it as the heart of the Gospel that they had received from Christ. St. Ignatius of Antioch testified to the Real Presence at the end of the first century. He was a convert to Christianity. Uh, Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John and he was also made Bishop of Antioch by St. Peter. Ignatius was the Bishop of Antioch for 40 years and was eventually martyred under the persecution by Trajan. In one of his letters, he clearly attests to the Real Presence. Consider how contrary to the mind of God are the heterodox, heterodox is, is the opposite of orthodox, contrary to the mind are the heterodox in regard to the grace of God which has come to us. They have no regard for charity, none for the widow, the orphan, the, the oppressed, none for the man in prison, the hungry or the thirsty. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his graciousness raised from the dead. Irenaeus even spoke of his own martyrdom in Eucharistic terms. I am his wheat, he said, ground fine by the lion's teeth to make purest bread for Christ. Another church father, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, proclaimed, after the invocation, the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ. And Theodore of Mopsquestia says, we ought not regard the Eucharistic elements merely as bread and cup, but as body and blood of Christ, into which they were transformed by the descent of the Holy Spirit. And John Chrysostom says, when the word Jesus says, this is my body, be convinced of it and believe it. We also have the witness of St. Athanasius. In a homily he preached to the newly baptized, he says, you shall see the Levites, and there he's referring to priests, bringing loaves and a cup of wine and placing them on the altar. So long as the prayers of the supplicant and entreaties have not been made, there is only bread and wine. But after the great and wonderful prayers have been completed, then the bread is become the body and wine the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Among the greatest theologians of the early church, we have three fathers known as the Cappadocian Fathers, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Basil the Great, and St. Gregory of Nicianus. Among these great saints, Gregory of Nyssa was known as the thinker of the group, becoming a great theologian and writer. Throughout his years as priest and bishop, Gregory wrote extensively, leaving behind scripture commentaries, pastoral letters, and theological tracts. His writing impacted theology to such an extent that the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 called him the Father of Fathers, almost 300 years after his death. So what did this Father of Fathers have to say about the Real Presence? Among other things, he proclaimed that the bread is at first common bread, but when the mystery sanctifies it, it is called and actually becomes the body of Christ. He also wrote, Christ offered himself for us, victim and sacrifice, and priest as well. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When did he do this? When he made his own body food and his own blood food for his disciples. So to say that transubstantiation is a doctrine of the Middle Ages or the Council of Trent in the 16th century is to ignore the testimony of the Church Fathers. 
The fathers preached and wrote about the real presence. It permeates their writings, just as it should permeate our lives. The New Testament, which Christ made with his church at the Last Supper, was a source and summit of their lives. They live in and through the real presence, and we are called to do the same thing. In our next session, we're going to build on what we learned today and see how this institution of the New Testament by Christ, our new covenant in his blood, requires another institution which we call the church. Say in our Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the world. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.